right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time set. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Drovetta. I am Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. KU didn't play last night, but a couple other of the top teams in the Big 12 did. Baylor was tied at halftime with Kansas State, but they ended up winning pretty handedly in the end. Texas Tech, though, lost. They lost at Oklahoma. Um, so I guess that gives a clear path to who KU fans should be rooting for in the game uh, between Texas Tech and Baylor Where when is they're playing that game? Lubbock. There, it so now Tech already beat them in, in Waco, didn't Yeah, they, they? beat them in, in Waco, but uh, Tech is now one behind Baylor in the loss column, so clearly... Uh, that'll now be, you know, you root for Texas Tech to try to get Kansas the better shot at at winning the league. Um, If we were to designate right now, as you look at the Big 12 standings, Kansas currently in first, Baylor in second, and then you have both Texas Tech and Texas with four losses in the league. Now, Kansas uh, doesn't have the, like like Baylor and, and Texas Tech, Texas, they all have 11 games. Kansas has 10 because the TCU game, which they won't make up till. Um, the last week of the regular season. Uh, KU has the same amount of wins as Baylor. They just have one less loss. As you look at it, who all right now do you give a shot to at least getting a share of the Big 12? Kansas, Tech, Baylor, and since you included the word a shot, I'll say mm-hmm. Texas. Well, I, I really... Okay, realistic shot. I No, I, and I, I know, I know, I know you're not like... Because technically there are like probably six teams. Like technically no, like, like, TCU, like, I, I, like yeah. if you... No, if you to kind of rephrase so so people know what we mean. If if like I fell into a coma and I woke up the day the conference was decided, and you told me Texas was one of the winners, they're probably the last team that wouldn't really shock me. Um, like they need the most help, but they're probably the last. So it's probably those four teams. Texas way below the rest of them, but Texas is probably the last of the Big Twelve teams that if they wound up getting a share of this conference championship wouldn't outright stun me. So I think by, like, how good the team is, like, I think Texas Tech is better than Texas. I think you can almost make a case that Texas should be ahead of Texas Tech in terms of the odds there. Texas still has to play Baylor twice, and they have Kansas once. Hypothetically, if they won all three of those games, they're sitting pretty. Texas Tech just has the Baylor game. They're done with Kansas. So, like, in terms of just opportunity. Yeah, Baylor can close, can actually, they, they don't need any help. Yeah, yeah, just in terms of opportunity, Texas can have a better shot than maybe both Baylor and Texas Tech. But uh, because of the fact that I don't think they're as good, maybe I wouldn't put them there. But, yeah, I, I think Kansas, Baylor, and Texas Tech and Texas all have a shot at winning the coverage. TCU has just four losses right now, but they also have just five wins. I don't give them a legit shot at winning the I also don't the think they're particularly good. No, they're fine. I think they're an NCAA tournament team. That's kind of where the conversation stops for me with them. I'll say this. Would you agree with this? If Texas 
if Texas win, wins this conference, would it mean that nobody's getting a one seed? Yes. Yes, it probably 100%. would mean that the the, guy, the teams at the top have played down a bit. Yeah, and, and Texas is seven and four right now in conference play. Yes, of course they could win out, and then if it, it, that's the thing, like if Texas won out, then Texas probably gets a one seed. You we'll, have an argument. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk with Dave Almond of Bracketville coming up at about three forty, uh, who's going to talk some bracket talk with us. We'll also have Shane Jackson on at four forty to talk some Super Bowl props, but. You're playing at Baylor, at Oklahoma, at West Virginia, at Kansas, home against Baylor, home against TCU and Tech. They're not winning out. I, I feel confident saying that, which, to your point, if Texas at least gets a share of the conference, it probably means that they had to do it at like 12-6 and six or 13-5, and five, which, yeah, at that point, nobody's getting a one seed out of the Big 12. I'll say this, though, about the case for Texas, because, um, like I said, the opportunity is there for them to do it, but because I don't think they're as good as Baylor or Tech, and because I think you could also view it as, even though the opportunity's there, with all those hard games, the opportunity is there for them to tank and finish like 10-8 and eight in conference play. But I'll say this, if you go by efficiency numbers just in conference play, so uh, Ken Palm obviously does their adjusted EM, which takes into account you have the offense minus the defense. Your offense is how many points per 100 possessions are you scoring adjusted to your opponent's uh, defensive rankings. Your defensive efficiency is the same thing. How many points you're giving up per 100 possessions adjusted to how tough of offenses you're playing. And then you come up with the adjusted EM, which is your basically overall metric to see how good this team is. You subtract the offense minus the defense. Well, you can do the same thing in conference-only games. And in conference-only games, Texas is actually ahead of Baylor and Texas Tech so far in really? efficiency. But, again... They haven't played Baylor twice. They haven't played Kansas. And they the lost time. To Texas Tech. Yeah, they haven't played Tech the second time yeah. either. So it's it's kind of a uh, you know uh, an unbalanced schedule of figuring that out, so to speak. Where is that Texas? Do you have in front of you? Where's that Texas KU game? Because I'm kind of my thought it's is a, the what, Texas KU game. I not I know it's in Lawrence. I mean uh, time wise, like what date? Oh yeah, that is the very that's senior day for Kansas. It is the last. So they won't be okay. So my my thought it's was the last game of the kind of the concern. So they'll be fueled for that. They'll be fueled because they're angry. But then my my worry was was it going to be in but in that spot where they're playing like three games in five days because well, they is, have the makeup the with game. TCU. That that so is the, the third there. game in five days. Yes, that you would be a little bit tired there. Um, the good news is that the the Thursday game that's squeezed in against TCU is a home game. So you're going to be home for the last two at the very yeah, least. Yeah, that's a good thing. I do think it's funny as well. Like, sometimes we get caught up in this, you know, how tired are these guys? And I do think there is, you know, a part of that that there is fatigue. But it's like, for the guys that want to go play in the NBA next year, you're going to be playing four games in a week, right? A lot of them also spent their summers, you know, at least on the weekends, playing five games a yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. You play like an AAU, AAU tournament. And it's five games in a day. So it is kind of funny that, but like, yeah, you do worry about that. Um I do think, though, it is mostly Kansas, Baylor, and Tech. The way I see this... Yeah, Texas is the, is the lowest, but they're a right. clear drop-off from the other three. Yeah, like I said, the opportunity for them is greater than those other teams, but they also have a lower floor because they have to play all those tough games. Um, the way I see it is this. If Kansas beats Baylor in Waco, you can just wrap this thing up right now. Oh, yeah. If Baylor wins that game then that doesn't necessarily mean Baylor can still win the conference because, again, Baylor still has to play at Texas Tech. They still have to play Texas twice. Um, 
And then you just have the, you know, every Big 12 road game is one that you feel like you could hypothetically trip up. Um, if KU winds up winning this this thing, or if they tie or win it outright by one game, every obviously every game is going to be huge. But how huge is that Ochai shot going to become to force that second overtime? It really attack? could be the difference. It, it honestly might be the difference at the end of the day. But I'll say this. If Baylor wins the Kansas game, like whereas... Kansas winning it basically crushes the competition. Baylor winning it just means, okay, now it's more of an even playing field. But then you have the, to me, the the number two game of importance outside of the Baylor-Kansas game in Waco is the Baylor at Tech game. If Texas beats Baylor in Lubbock, then KU has free reign to lose that game down in Waco. Do they, yeah, that's right, because Tech mm-hmm. lost last night. Yeah, you're right, because they have a two-game lead right now in the lost column over Tech. And that's obviously, you know, at that point, even if if Tech were to beat Baylor, even if both of them were to win out their other games and Kansas were to lose in Waco, if you win the rest of your games, boom, you have the conference all to yourself. Even if you get upset one time, then you're still, at the very least at that point, getting a share of the conference. But... I do think there is an importance this year in winning the conference outright. I mean, there always is. You never want to share it to begin with. If you want to get a one seed, I think your best route at is having to win the conference, but out, outright. Yeah, I should say, especially if that include. I mean, because that would, especially if it includes. Now, look, if they win, if they win at Wake, if Kansas wins at Waco, they're most likely mm-hmm. going to win it outright. Um, but you can add like. There, you could make the argument like, okay, if they win at Baylor, that's all the more reason to give them the one seed because it would be two wins over over a Baylor team. Um, so it's kind of a chicken or egg. Would would they get the one seed because they'd won the conference outright, or would they get the the one seed because they beat Baylor twice? But again, um, if you win this thing outright, you're looking at you know a conference is probably going to produce a one seed. A two two seed and a three seed. Yeah, and when you look at all the competition there is for a one seed right now, the last thing you want to have happen is you share the conference with Baylor, and then Baylor beats you in the Big 12 championship final, Yeah, and then they go with Baylor instead of you for a tiebreaker for a one seed, right? Or they just go, you know, this is too muddled. There's two teams here. I don't know which one to pick. Let's just pick, you know, Purdue or Kentucky, Kentucky or, whoever, and Auburn, right? yeah. or Arizona, whatever school it is. You don't want that to happen. You want to be the clear, definitive winner of the Big 12, which is renowned as the deepest conference or the best conference, you know, one through last in the country. And that's uh, of a lot of importance. I think there's also a lot of importance of winning the conference outright because then it distances you from the, and I don't remember what the the tiebreaker is for uh, the seeding purposes of the Big 12 tournament between if you have two teams that tied and split head-to-head. Oh, yeah. I think maybe it goes to record of like... um win-loss against the next best team in the Big 12, which, you know, in this scenario, it's probably because Baylor won um, in on the road in Lubbock against Texas Tech, so you'd be 1-1 one one there, and I think you would just continue to go further down the list. I don't know how that would work, but you don't want to get in that situation either because as we're talking about getting a one seed, I think there is, because there's all that competition, there is going to be maybe more pressure on KU this year. Like, we've had certain years where you go into the Big 12 tournament and you almost say, like, does this even matter? Like, I, I think back 20, to a couple 2017 years. is a perfect exactly. example. Now, Josh Jackson had to sit because of a suspension, but Kansas was the one seed. 
They were going. There was no chance they weren't getting a one seed in the tournament. And I don't even think now they wound up as the number two overall seed that year after losing the quarterfinals against TCU. I doubt winning the conference or the conference tournament was going to jump them to the number one overall seed. But it certainly had nothing to do with them not. They were the number two overall seed, and they didn't even win a game in their conference tournament. Yeah. So there are years where the Big Twelve tournament, like it doesn't really matter either way. They're getting a one seed. Uh, this is obviously not one of those years. Now, maybe if, if Kansas were to win out the rest of the regular season, go 16-2 and two in Big 12 play, at I that point, it's yes. It's hard to keep them off the one Exactly. Line the Big 12 tournament probably doesn't matter. And maybe even if they go 15-3 and three in Big 12 play and you win at Baylor to get the sweep there, even at that point, maybe it's just like all you got to do is win your first Big 12 tournament game and you're a one seed. But in the scenario where they go 14-4 and four and, you know, win the Big 12 tournament or, or win the Big 12 by one game, Big 12 tournament does matter this year or in the scenario where they do share the conference. And to that notion, getting the one seed in the Big 12 where you avoid the share and don't even have to worry about that tiebreaker of are we going to get the one or the two seed, it matters even more this year because think about it. How much would you want to play Texas Tech in the semifinals if they were the three seed? Yeah. You know, I'd much rather play Texas as the four seed. Yeah, exactly. Even though they just lost I mean, Baylor and Texas Tech could grab another loss slash win over the other in the other semifinal. Kind of like Oklahoma versus West Virginia in 2016. We had Buddy Heald, but then you also had West Virginia, who was, was, you know, a a very good team. Um, And they they duked it out. I can't remember. Oh, Kansas beat Baylor in the semifinals that year with the Wayne Selden dunk. That's right. Um, Fogel Anthony and everything. Yeah, and uh, and so you had the the, the two, or like the, the... you know, the two main contenders for Kansas in that Big 12 tournament played each other. So you didn't have to play them both. You only beneficial. had to play one. I'm trying to think back. 2018, KU finished 14-4 and in the conference. They rebounded. They had a, they had a rough loss, a really bad. It, it, I mean, Baylor was a fine team, but they lost in a, in a blowout fashion in Waco. Kind of recovered. Um, wound up 14-4 and because they got smoked in uh, Stillwater to finish the season. That pushed them to 13-5. and five. I have Oh, they right did here. go 13-5. and five. Yeah. Okay, so do you think they had to win the, the conference tournament that year? Because they did, and they wound up, but the, the thing is, they wound up as the number three mm. overall one seed, not the number four, which makes me wonder if they would have just made it to the conference championship and lost that title game to West Virginia in Kansas City, would they have been the number four overall one? Or did they, just to get a one seed period, did they have to win it? Okay, so the one seeds that year were Virginia was the number one overall. That was the year Virginia got upset by UMBC, UMBC. right? Nova um, was the two. It was the two. Kansas was the three. And then the fourth one seed was Xavier. Okay. So, man, that's tough because I, I don't know at that point. Like, they're, they're Big East, right? Yeah, and you would have had two Big East teams. Like, is was Kansas really a threat of being dropped by Xavier? Yeah. But then again, you could also say, like, um, I, I don't know who the top two seed was that year because I, they don't always do the, the pure S curve, right? No, they don't do that. Like, Duke might have been the top two seed. And Duke, I, mean, I, I can tell you that Duke was favored over Kansas in that Elite Eight. Yeah, but Duke lost in the ACC, like, semifinals. Man, I don't know. I I would like to think that yes, it was the difference because that team had a lot of. Losses, I really think but. in 07, even though KU law went fourteen and two, uh, in the Big Twelve in 07, and those losses were let's see, one was um, at Tech, which wasn't a, was a, not not a great loss, 
And then the other one was at home with AC Law cannon the shot um, in Allen Fieldhouse. And but they had non-con losses to like DePaul and Oral Roberts last that year. I honestly think KU had to beat Texas and Oklahoma City on that Sunday to get a one seed, and they were the number four one seed. And that that I think might be an example of a year where they really needed the tournament to jump to to secure at least to not be sweating it out. I think this year, and again, we're going to talk with Dave Allman uh, a little more about the bracket and everything. I think this year might be one of those years where they might have to win it because if you think about it, I mean, I know Auburn lost to Arkansas. How many other games are you expecting Auburn to lose the rest of the way? Yeah. Maybe one. And, and and I mean, they play Kentucky again. Not again. They they played them so once. They may they lose them. to them, and the the now, next time they, they could, play yeah. would be the SEC tournament. Right. I mean, this is uh, they play Tennessee on the road. That's the one. That they could lose. Outside of that, again, you could lose any game. Uh, they play no teams in the top 45 of Ken Palm the rest of the way. So, okay, let's say, worst case, they even lose two games the rest of the way. Even at that point, they would be four losses, likely the SEC champions. It, it's yeah. hard to see them not getting a one seed. So it would have to be a lot of KU taking advantage of how many high-level wins that could potentially be left mm-hmm. on their schedule yeah. if they pull them off. Gonzaga, worst case, they get upset Gonzaga's one a, time. A one They're going to get yeah. a one seed, right? Um, so that leaves you two spots, and then I think you have to worry. Like, Purdue is going to continue to rack up wins in the Big Ten. Um, they're going to be a, a top contender for you. Duke is playing in the ACC. They could just win out because it's the ACC. You could have the Pac-12 winner, either UCLA or Arizona. And then the, the sneaking one that really could hurt you is Kentucky because they have the head-to-head. Real quick, because um, I know we got to get to break. Where are they? Chicago, Philly, San Antonio, and L.A.? Ah, uh, I don't know. I think that's it. Um, I'll keep talking while you pull that up. Because the point I'm trying to make here is in 2007, Kansas was the no- – they, they got that one seed. They beat Texas in the Big 12 championship game, got the one seed – but they went to San Jose, and their two seed was UCLA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my question is: two seed in Chicago or one seed in <laughs> LA against Gonzaga? So it looks like it's Philadelphia, Chicago, San Antonio, San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay. Now but, look, you're not getting the one seed in San Francisco. That's going to no. Gonzaga. Yeah. Um. So like, would you? You know, but the, just to that point, two seed in. How about that? One seed in Philly, two seed in Chicago. Now, it's not as close as, like, Omaha was, and I think KU was helped along by the fact that that game against Duke, even though KU was the one seed that year, but that game being in Omaha, I think, was big. But then again, KU and Kansas City in 2017, that didn't work out. So, I don't know. I don't know how big of a difference that might make. I think in that scenario, I would take the two seed in Chicago, but I guess my counter to that would be have your cake and eat it, too. Yeah. Get the one seed in Chicago, right? Get the one seed in Chicago. Um, I'll say this. This has got to be very, very beneficial for KU. When you look at most quadrant one wins, which again, um, the stipulations, it's top 30 at home, top 50 on neutral, top 75 on the road. KU is currently tied second. They're only behind Wisconsin and Baylor, who each have eight. KU and Auburn each have seven. And then when you look at quad two wins, um, KU ranks uh, tied second as well with five. So when you look at total between quad one and quad two, KU is is tied for first there. And they have a chance to get more of those. Yeah, and, and there's this one site called bracketresearch.com. They put together this Q score, which basically you get four points for a quad one win, 
You get three points for a quad two win, two points for quad three, one point for quad four, and then it's the inverse for losses. You lose one point for quad one, lose two points for quad two, so forth. And then it, it adds all it up, all of them up, your wins, your losses in the different quadrants, and divides it by per games played. By that Q score, the only team ahead of Kansas right now is Auburn, who has a 2.38, Kansas is a 2.17. So resume-wise, Kansas is great, as we've already discussed before. Every game in the Big 12 from here on out is quad one or quad two win. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, quad two win is worth three points. That raises your Q score for every win you have, at the very least, and and that is a good thing for Kansas. Uh, but certainly winning the Big 12 outright would go a long ways. And the KU-Baylor game, the most important outside of that, Texas Tech-Baylor game going to be pretty important to watch as well. We're going to be joined by Dave Amon to talk more about the bracket in about 15 minutes. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back. About a quarter till four. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, and on KLWN.com. We've had on Dave Amon of Brackettville. I think each of the last couple of seasons here does great work over at Brackettville. It's one of the most accurate bracketology sites in the country. And now Dave Amon joins us on the show. Dave, thank you for making time. Um, KU right now seems to be kind of flirting between that uh, one of the last couple one lines or one of the top two seeds at the moment. Uh, what is it about KU's resume that I guess we'll start here uh, has made them so appealing from a seeding purpose that, you know, maybe if you look at the AP rankings, they're around the eight to 10 area, but it seems like they're closer to that top five from the seeding list. So what about their resume has made them more appealing? Well, a couple of things, uh, uh, Derek, you know, first of all, Kansas, on a regular basis, plays a very strong schedule. So that's something that the committee likes to see. You know, historically, they reward teams who choose to play a strong schedule, particularly out of conference, and when they perform well against that schedule, which Kansas typically does. So that's one thing. I think another just, you know, since going to the new net format, and it was similar with the old RPI, but Kansas has – performed well against better competition, 7-3 and three against the current Quadrant 1 profile, and then 12-4 and four against the top two, which indicates, you know, their performance is very strong against some of the highly regarded teams in the country. Kansas also has played well on the road, I believe, 5-2. and two. And depending upon what happens with West Virginia, Oklahoma, or a couple of other teams in there, you know, right now would say have six to seven wins against teams that would be in the field. So all of those are considerations in why the committee, I would think, right now and and moving forward will have a high regard for Kansas' overall body of work. Yeah, I know from, from a selection standpoint, like quadrant wins, that's the thing that gets talked about a lot. Does the net ranking at all, does does that matter outside of what it means for being what quadrant win? Like, does that go into the evaluation process? I mean, I mean I'm not on the committee. You know, my understanding and takeaway from hearing what they say is that it's part of the equation, but it's more of a sorting tool, like you mentioned, about how those teams get slotted into quadrants for a home game, away game, 
et cetera. So who you beat and the net number of the teams that you play and beat is probably overall maybe a little more important than your net number. Um, you know, I say that with this caveat is to be a very high seed, in most cases, your net number also is somewhat corresponding to that. It doesn't mean it's a straight thing where the top four net teams are number ones because that's not going to happen um, again this year. But it would be much more rare for, say, a team in the 20s to end up being a top one or two seed without some other mitigating factors. Yeah, and as far as the quadrant wins go, like it, is that the most important piece as you're evaluating and trying to predict what's going to happen when you look at the resumes? Is that the the top thing? I guess how big of a piece of the pie are, are the quadrant wins into evaluations for you? Well, it's certainly an important component in the sense that it's one important component because it obviously reflects the quality of the competition that you are playing. If you're playing a lot of top 100 teams, those teams are going to tend to end up being in those first two quadrants. So how you fare against, say, the net top 100, and then secondarily how you fare against teams that are projected to be in the field, particularly as an at-large team. Those are all factors. There's also a lot of, that's the science part of it. There's also an art part to it. You know, we watch a lot of basketball. We see how teams are. There is a certain amount of metrical component. The net is part of that. There are some others the, the committee may or may not factor to a given point. And then part of it is, you know, really who you played, who you beat, where did you beat them, and then who did you choose to play in the non-conference. All of this kind of gets cycled together, and then you get an overall profile. If two teams are really close, maybe a head-to-head comes into it, although that's not as important as most people think. Um, you know, just it's one component of a whole profile on a team. And then some of it is just how, you know, if, if you're really close between two teams, you know, who does somebody think is just better and performed better overall? How do they look overall? As I look at the one line right now, it, it feels to me, and, and obviously I know you're not in the, the prediction game. It's more of an evaluation thing. But even though Auburn loses last night to Arkansas, I feel like maybe Gonzaga and Arkansas, or, or not Arkansas, Gonzaga and Auburn have really, I guess, supplanted themselves atop that one line. Um, are, are those two schools, I mean, barring, you know, I guess a couple losses each the rest of the way, are they getting close to that lock territory of being in uh, for sure as one seeds? Well, I would say overall they have the strongest two profiles at this particular point in time. You know, if you're in the predicting business, you know, Gonzaga is probably, to me, the closest lock to end up being number one in the West again, simply because, well, one, Gonzaga is really good again, and two, it's very likely that they'll be favored in every single game the rest of their season. So even if they lose one of those somewhere along the line, which is entirely possible, it's very likely that they're going to end up as a number one seed. Now, whether that's number one overall or not, I don't know if it's you know, that big of a deal. Uh, Auburn, you know, has some tough remaining games, and that's the downside to playing in, like, the Big 12 or the SEC or the Big 10 is you always have those chances for big wins, but you also have a chance for some additional losses. You know, so if we're looking, for example, of teams who are in that number one seed discussion right now, obviously you have Gonzaga, Auburn, Purdue, Kentucky, Kansas, Arizona are probably the primaries, and then right behind them, 
You know, you still have a Baylor, if they go on a strong run to close the season, kind of lurking on the perimeter of Wisconsin, um, a UCLA. I, I think Duke's loss to Virginia puts them a, a step behind. But, again, if it's more than possible, given the nature of the ACC this year, that Duke could run the table from here on out, and that would likely put them uh, squarely back in that discussion, I, I would think, on Selection Sunday. So those would be the schools then that, you know, from a Kansas perspective or Kansas fans to, to watch out and basically be on high alert for, I guess, being in the strongest contention with them for one seeds. Um, hypothetically, if Gonzaga and Auburn were two of them, that would only leave two spots. Uh, who are some of those other schools? Purdue, uh, Kentucky. I mean, what are the other schools that Kansas do you think would be in, in the tightest contention with uh, to try to get a one seed? Yeah, you know, if Auburn and Gonzaga hold on to their spots, then I would say, you know, right today you're looking at Purdue, you're looking at Kentucky, you're looking at Arizona is probably the other three biggest contenders. So in that case, you got four teams for two spots. Um, and then it would take a little more work. You know, Baylor would have to pass Kansas at this point. Um, and, and then the others probably are going to have to have a little help where a, a collective group of, you know, Kentucky, Kansas, Arizona, Purdue, take a step back, or if Auburn were to hit some sort of an unexpected slide. How much of a threat do you think it is to Kansas that Kentucky is in that discussion now, knowing that Kentucky has the 18-point win in Allen Fieldhouse? Is that kind of a trump card that could leave them off the one line? It's possible. Again, remember that one game is just that, and head-to-head matchups are not considered as heavily by the committee. Now, I will say this. If if you're imagine yourself in that committee room and you're coming down and Kentucky has a strong finish and say maybe only loses once or twice the rest of the way, maybe beats Auburn in the in the SEC championship, and then you have a Kansas team that loses a couple of games coming in and they're finished second in the Big 12, and you're coming down between those two teams for the final one spot in the top two spot, um, or a regional if they both end up on the one line, which is always possible too, um, then maybe if, if everything is very, very close, the committee pulls out, well, did they play head-to-head? Yes, where was it here? Kentucky won. That might give them a slight edge. But, you know, that's a lot of other activity between now and, say, the end of February, early March, when that might come into play. We're talking with Dave Amon of Brackettville here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Um, in your last seed list, you had Houston as uh, the top four seed, 13th overall. And I know you mentioned on, on Twitter that even after the close loss last night against SMU, they're still right there. Is, is that where maybe a cutoff would be? Or I, I don't know, maybe it would be further down the list of where you think it might be too difficult for certain teams to make that jump from where they are to a one seed? I guess, like, like, is there anything that Houston can do at this point to get a one seed? And, and are there other schools where maybe you find that cutoff where even if they were to, to win out, you have a hard time seeing them get all the way to that top line? Well, I think, you know, Houston's biggest issue, of course, is just the American Conference doesn't provide the same level of heft um, for opportunity for big wins. So I'm not sure the one line is you know, attainable. I think last year's Houston team had very good metrics um, in the net, and they got a two. Um, I'm not sure this year's Houston team is quite as strong. So I I think they would have to have a lot of help to get to the one line, in my opinion. Now, if you're going to talk maybe a team that's slightly further back, that if they were to win out, 
you know, like I mentioned, a Wisconsin who's right there, you know, in the Big Ten and had an unexpected good year. If the UCLA were to win out from here um, or a Duke to win out from here, could they get back in the discussion? Further down, you know, I, I don't know that a team like, say, um, you know, an Illinois or a Texas at this point um, would have a quite enough to get all the way to the lump, one line. They would certainly have to have help to do so. Um, but, again, if either of those schools were to win out, you can imagine the number of quality wins that they're going to post between now and Selection Sunday. And the committee does like titles. They have said that. They have indicated that. So regular season and potentially tournament titles, if you're not playing Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, do tend to matter to the committee. That's kind of interesting because I, I was curious about that. Like with the the conference title stuff, Kansas is currently leading the Big 12 uh, do you factor that into your bracketology right now, or do you not factor in who won the conference till it's final? You know, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you can make some assessment, but until we actually know, unless a team is winning by multiple games right now, um, it's kind of hard to say, well, hey, I'm going to put them up a C-line because they won a title. Well, they haven't actually, you know, won a title yet, but... Um, that will come into play. You know, if Kansas wins the Big 12 regular season by, say, a game or two, you know, that obviously is another component of their resume that the committee can look at and say, hey, they won a very good league and they won it by multiple games with a relatively small number of losses. So that could be an advantage, yes. Dave, uh, this is Adam. I'm the the producer and the co-host, and I'm curious – um, on the topic of, of conference tournaments themselves, and specifically the Big 12, it was kind of a big deal uh, back, I, I can't remember exactly what year it happened, I think 2009. But anyway, it, it, since the Big 12 moved their conference title back from Sunday afternoon to Saturday evening, is there any evidence that that has helped at least the conference tournament champion to jump up a line since the committee hasn't had to go straight from the game ends to now we got to release the bracket? I mean, I would say this, I I guess, Adam, is that, you know, since we're not in the committee room, we really don't know. I mean, by the time you reach the conference championship, you're, you know, you have a pretty complete resume at that point. So unless you're a team that's outside the field and will only get in if you win, it's probably not going to have a huge impact on your seed unless things are really close. And here's what I mean by that. So let's say, for example, um, you've got a situation where you've got two teams that are either playing for regional preference or maybe one's on a one line and one's on a two, you know, say a four and a five on the seed list, and they're playing in a, in a conference championship game even on Sunday. Well, they can build a bracket to account. I mean, if it, they're both in the Big 12, it's just pretty much an easy switch, right? You know, so one's going to be the, the winner's going to be one in the south and the other one's going to be second in the Midwest or whatever it might be. Um, so there are some of those that come into play. There's either ors. Obviously, I would say this, though, that Saturday night does give the committee a final chance without having to make a designation on either 1A or 1B if you're playing at mid-Sunday afternoon. Because by the time you're playing a, a 2 o'clock or one thirty championship game on a Sunday, at that point the brackets are coming together. So they kind of have to pre-slot you in, if you will. And in many cases it may not matter whether you win or lose unless you're in one of those spots where it's an either-or. 
you have seven teams, at least at, at the last publication of the seed list from the Big 12 in the NCAA tournament. And then the other two teams, because Oklahoma State, not eligible, obviously, but the other two eligible teams, you have right there as just missing out with West Virginia and Kansas State. Is it actually possible that they could get all nine in, or do you think there is just going to be too much carnage of beating each other up that would prevent that? Probably the latter. I mean, it, it would take an ideal scenario for all of that to happen. What I will say is I, I feel pretty confident that, you know, six probably on the low end at this point, barring a surprise. And then seven is probably a more realistic number of how many are actually going to, to be there on Selection Sunday, which means you're probably going to end up with Oklahoma or West Virginia. Um, maybe not both. And with those schedules that particularly I think West Virginia has coming up, you know, it's just a – could they certainly do it? Yes. Is eight possible? Absolutely. I don't know that nine is going to be really difficult because you're asking then for, you know, Kansas State, who after losing last night is, you know, one game over 500. So can they win enough down the stretch to get themselves, say, three, maybe four games over 500 between now and Selection Sunday. If they do, I think they they would obviously have a shot given the quality of their wins. Realistically, that's probably going to be a tough ask, knowing that historically we'll lose a at-large spot or two just due to some upsets in other places. He is Dave Allman. Go check out Brackettville. Uh, It's got awesome work updating the seed list very regularly in the bracket and everything. Very great work. Dave, thank you so much for your time and, and hopping on with me. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always, a, it's always a pleasure. All right, that was Dave Allman of Brackettville. Really humble guy, so I'm, I, I doubt he'll you know, say this, but um, really accurate bracket. There's a site called Bracket Matrix. It, it ranks all the different bracketologists. He's one of the 10 best in the country. Um, he had the most accurate bracket in 2010 and 2015 when you're looking at just individual years so really good info really appreciate dave coming on the show and again you can check out all his work at bracketville for adam dravetta i'm Derek johnson one hour down two to go this is rock shock sports talk on fm 1017 1320 klwn depend on it four o'clock hour you're listening to rock shock sports talk i'm Derek johnson with adam dravetta on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up at 440, we're going to talk with Shane Jackson of WinBet, go over some of his favorite Super Bowl prop bets. We'll pick our prop bets coming up tomorrow. Um, tomorrow's going to be a bit of a short show. We're going to have a lot to jam pack in between KU Oklahoma. Um, Brian Haney will come on the show. Super Bowl obviously happening this weekend. Um, so a lot to happen. We are going to get to Adam's top 10 Winter Olympic sports here in just a second, which I am dying to know. Adam loves the Olympics. Yeah, he does. I have not been watching nearly as much as I probably should. But first, before we get into this, we have to pick a winner. We have to pick a winner. Um, Contest is out. Last-minute submissions are coming in. To hang out with me and eat cannolis and watch the Winter Olympics, right? (laughs) Is that a winner? I don't know. Um, no, we are picking a winner at my Twitter account at D Johnson radio. I guess if you get this in, in the next like 30 seconds before we pick the winner here, give me a follow, retweet the tweet, 
you are eligible to win a pair of KU basketball tickets for the game on Saturday against Oklahoma at noon, which you can also hear right here on KLWN and our sister station, 105.9 KISS, at noon with pregame at 10.30. Okay, so without... I'm sorry if if you get in now, it's too late. All right, and I'm recording this on video so we can prove that it's just me saying stop and you picking somebody. Okay, you want to do that? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so there's 151 entries. Let me know when you start scrolling. I am scrolling now. I am scrolling through. And very stop. well. It's loading. Oh. All right, uh, Nolan Wright, elected student council representative for his fifth grade class. His Twitter bio, love the humor. Good for Nolan. Nolan, you are going to the KU basketball game against Oklahoma. Congratulations. I'd like to say this. I, I know a lot of people like responded and, and replied saying you know, some nice messages about reasons they would love to go to the game or that they'd love to take their kid. I appreciate that. It, it's warming to see uh, you know, parents want to take in their kids or or that you're a KU alumni, haven't been back to a game in a while. I appreciate that, and I, I wish I could give tickets to all of you. I really do. Um, we, but we just we can't sit random, here and right? say I can't. I, I don't. We wanna, can't say yeah. well. We'd rather you go with your kid than this exactly. person who tweeted the exact exactly. same thing. I, I don't want to get into a contest of who deserves to go yeah, to the game more. We don't want to turn this just into random. an essay writing contest. Yeah. It's easy to just. Although do I could make you do all the work and read all the essays. You were I was major, I was right? a creative writing major. Yes. Okay. So next time we're gonna force you to write. No, we're not. A fifty-page essay, yeah. and honestly, one person will submit it, and you don't even have to read it. That's we'll a just, good point. No, you know. Uh, so congratulations, Nolan Wright. We'll be in contact there um, to try to get you hooked up with your tickets. All right. Without or with that out of the way, now we get on to Adam's top ten Winter Olympic sports. Go ahead and cue the music, Adam. Kick off the list. Let's go ten to one. Reverse to forward. All right, here we go. We're going to start with some uh, honorable mentions, starting with uh, hockey. That's an honorable mention, and the reason it's an honorable mention is not because I don't like it. I actually enjoy hockey a great deal. Wait, so hockey didn't even make the top ten? Let me explain why. It's because it's, it, it is most people know it outside of the Winter Olympics. It is a great sport, and I'll watch it during the Winter Olympics. Okay, but it and you know, but it is it is most people know it outside the Winter Olympics. They know the NHL, so that is why I'm going to go ahead and say hockey's an honorable mention. Cross country skiing is an honorable mention. You'll find out why here in a moment. Cross country skiing is a uh, is an honorable mention. Mm. Another great sport, That's boring, fun to watch, a little bit boring. And now Very let's get boring. to the top ten. And this top 10 involves okay. cross-country skiing. Number 10. Number 10, the biathlon. Because it's cross-country Wait, skiing. Wait, biathlon? And yeah, it's cross-country skiing, which, yes, is a little boring. But then you get to shoot stuff. I, okay. I I think cross-country skiing is so boring that it should not be on the list. But it's shooting stuff. But I guess if you're like... This is like, to me, if you only tuned into the fourth quarter of games. Like, the first three quarters, I don't care about. But, yeah. hey, the last quarter, you're shooting stuff. So, it's interesting. Are they shooting stuff while they're on skis? Is yeah, that, you, you go, you go. Is you, safe? Well, that seems to be. You go, you go, you go. You pick it, you go. You shoot the targets. You ski some more. You go to the next targets. It's difficult to do, man. It's very interesting to watch. And those are a little uh, shorter. But, see, you're also talking to a guy who really enjoys the marathon during the Summer Olympics. Yeah, Even I though it's it. long and I boring. hate it. I'm already annoyed that hockey did not make the list for this. 
All right, moving on. Number nine. Number nine. Curling. Who doesn't love curling? Honestly, surprised it's not higher. It's um, well, I I just there's I I kept adding more ahead of it that I was like God, I I was shocked it wound up. I didn't mean for it to. I just kept adding stuff ahead of it, and I was like, wow, curling wound up low. Um, it's a fun sport. It it really is beyond just being a niche, and it and it's it's silly. Um, but really, if you enjoy kind of darts and shuffleboard, then you get the you get the point of it, and I think it's a sport that a lot of people look at and go, I can figure that out. <laughs> I think you, you need touch. That's why I think, yeah. you know, I mean, Jared Allen was, and his team was shockingly close to going to the Olympics. Yeah, so I... As a curling team. I, uh, like I said, have not been watching a ton of Winter Olympics, but in terms of sports I'm most likely to watch, curling would probably be, like, top three or top five for me. I just, I, I find it fascinating. You have the Ken Palm rankings of curling yeah he puts that up there i think this one should be higher it's a, a fun it's a fun little it's a fun little game next one number eight speed skating what a blast it looks like it would hurt your back like crazy because they're all bent over the sprints they're so bunched together bent over that it kind of looks like the human centipede but <laughs> still a really exciting I, I remember as a kid apollo anton ono was a big big deal in mm -hmm. speed skating he was a blast to watch. He fell one Olympics and then came back and got the gold the following Olympics. A great redemption story. Speed skating is if you don't like uh, the the, the cross-country uh, um, skiing, then speed skating w would probably be for you because the longest of that is um, the 5,000 meter. And even that's even done in like uh, six minutes, six and a half minutes. I it's love a fun the speed sport. skate. Yeah, that that was honestly maybe besides hockey my favorite win. You said Apollo Antonono was in there. Uh, there's maybe not the characters. Maybe I just haven't been watching as much, or it hasn't been marketed as much to me for whatever reason. Uh, but that one is fun. Anything with a sprint, it's fast. I don't have to sit there for three hours and watch a marathon. Love it. There's a great speed skating race. I can't remember which Olympics it was, but a dude from Australia. Won the Nate, one of the only um, medals in Australian Winter Olympic history because everybody else fell down in their speed skating sprint. He was near the back of the pack. The head, the head guys fell, and all fell on top of each other. And he took, uh, he wound up. I don't know if he wound up winning or taking like third or second. But anyway, number seven, figure skating. Nathan Chin was awesome last mm. night. Let me tell you something, Derek. There is not a better feeling on this planet then putting in something and putting in so much time and finally breaking through after you've come up short the last time nathan chen i think took fifth or sixth in um in 2018 in pyeongchang and he i mean it really was disappointing he was incredible last night um i hope it didn't spoil anything i hope you're not planning on watching the dvr no it's okay but he, he figure skating is so cool to watch it um i put it where i put it because i really all of these like you know, it, 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 you're right now we're getting into the list. Speed skating kind of begins the list of things that I can't do. Um, and, and figure skating is way up there. Yeah, figure skating is really hard. Not, again, not something that I'm super interested in. I think it's kind of boring personally. It's but like the flow of, of a lot of people like amazing. it. It's very artistic. Um, in the by the way, you said, move. you know, you said that um, if you haven't watched it yet, well, I think it is so ridiculous that the Olympics doesn't allow for clips to be tweeted out because they don't want to spoil things. Um, Meanwhile, so, they put it out on YouTube. Yeah, just to let you know, because you spoiled that, 
over a basically radio clip. I think that somebody from the Olympic Committee is going to come try to murder you, so you better watch out. You might want to keep your eyes peeled on the They're a fine, the upstanding maybe, organization. I don't yeah, know what you're talking about. Maybe close the uh, blinds so that somebody can't snipe you away. They're All a right. very reputable organization. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Number six. Slalom skiing. Whether it be the big giant slalom or the smaller slalom, slalom skiing is awesome. I want to tell you, I left the type the uh, the mogul skiing off this list because it makes my knees hurt to watch. You know, mm-hmm. the type of dong, 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 dong. But I love the slalom skiing. Um, it's, again, you want to talk about grace and enjoyment to watch. It's quick. You know, if you like sprint-type races, it's it's fast. Uh, Michaela Schifrin, unfortunately, uh, has struggled this Olympics. Now you're getting double murdered. Why? You just spoiled another Oh, thing. no, that one's old. That's That was a couple days ago. Um but yeah, the, the slalom skiing uh, is is a fun one. I I, I really it was kind of the '98 in Nagano was when I really started getting into a downhill skiing as far as a spectator, not participating. Of course, that one's scary. Number five. Now we're getting into the really scary stuff: the luge. By yourself on that little board that looks Wait, like. What's the, the difference thing- between the luge and the uh, bobsled? Uh, in the luge, you're just laying backwards on a little board. How is that different than the bobsled? You're in a sled, in the bobsled. Hmm. Struggling to see the difference. The luge, you're laying, you're by yourself, laying flat on your back. Okay. On a board. Okay. The bobsled, you're sitting up in a sled. Oh, so it's just one's at a ninety degree angle, the others at a forty-five. No, you're you're at a one eighty. Okay, so one you're you're sleeping, one the other you're sitting. Yeah. Going down that the hill. That sounds pretty easy to me. At, yeah, sure. Going downhill at remarkable speeds. Incredible speeds. Yeah. I can just drive my car. Same thing. Yeah, because you're too scared Hockey's to uh, better. You're too scared to do any of this other stuff. Next. Number four. Bob sledding. Who doesn't love Bob sledding? You got the doubles, you got the quads. You gotta get you know, it's a very it's it's more team oriented. Um, because you got to get the, the a good solid running spot running uh Running uh, start, uh, bobsled looks terrifying, uh, but also a lot of fun at the same time. Do you think that the popularity of bobsledding or people knowing what it is would be like hundreds of percentages lower if the movie Cool Runnings didn't get released? I'm sure it helped. Um, Yeah, I'm sure it helped quite a bit. Number three. Skeleton racing. Skeleton racing is luge, except your head's forward instead of your feet. Oh, that's not safe. I Okay, so they're basically saying you're going to be a skeleton. Yeah, you'll you're die. die. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't yeah. sound smart. Why is that a sport? I don't know, but it's luge, except you're facing forward, and it's it's really fun See, to watch. See, I'll be honest. This really makes me intense. not want to watch it because I'm afraid that somebody's going to die. I don't, don't want to watch that on TV. Well, I don't think anybody has died. Don't you watch football? Yeah, but like... I don't know. There's a little bit of difference. I've never seen somebody actually die on the football field. I don't think anybody's actually died in the luge or the skeleton race in the Olympics, at least not not in modern times. I'd be willing to bet the last on-field death in the NFL is more recent than the last death in skeleton racing or luge during the Olympics. Kay Shishpeki died one day after a luge crash during practice, which occurred eight days before the opening of the 2010 Olympic Games. See, there you go. It hasn't happened during the Olympics. Number two. Snowboarding. The half pipe, the race, all that good stuff. I love snowboarding. It's uh, very um, anti-establishment, a little transgressive. Uh, a lot of people, the, the old snobs in the Olympics didn't want it. They didn't want it to be part of it. 
Um, I think you kind of, you're, you're really, I'm shocked they actually drug test the snowboarders because they're all high. <laughs> and one of the greatest quotes ever came from an Olympic champion snowboarder, Sean White, when he was asked on CNN. He said it was great. All the uh, flight attendants on the airline were giving, wanted to see the gold. They were giving me snacks and drinks, and it was great. And the CNN reporter stopped and said, wait a minute, drinks? You're 19 years old. And immediately he quipped back, I'm talking Mountain Dews, baby. Oh, so great. He's competing too, right? He is, yeah. He's like 100 now. Yeah. It feels more of like, a, you know, it's awesome you made it there at this age. I, I don't know if he's projected to like win or not. Um, you know what's funny, though? Going back to like all these sports that could kill you, this one doesn't really seem like one of them that is that way. Um, do you think back in the Olympics when it first started, like all of the sports were like, no, these have to be able to kill you? That's a good point. I've, like I've said for years. Seventeen hundred. I don't know. I've said for years that speed skating, at least the longer ones, like the five thousand meter, needs to be on, on outside on a on a like on a lake. Oh Just yeah. Just like a straight sprint to five thousand instead of where it's a little too a thin, circle. and if yeah. you go in it, you drop under. Yeah. <laughs> um, I felt for a long time that would be an interesting way to up the stakes. Number one. You want to talk about danger, Derek? Ski jumping. Even more dangerous this year because they're doing it right next to a nuclear power plant. I don't know why they picked that spot, but they sure did. Um, ski jumping, probably my absolute favorite. It's it's so cool. They, they fly through the air. They look like those flying squirrel things. Yeah, that that's one where if a normal person had to do it, they'd die. There are some great videos online of, uh, of ski jumpers that th- they train on ski jumps in the summer because the landing is still there and it's just soft grass, soft-ish grass. And if you can land on your skis, you're fine. Um, but they, they they basically lock their skis in these uh, in these metal kind of girder things and they go down and jump like they would on, on you know, on actual, in, in snow, except they land on grass instead of snow. It's real cool. That's got to be one of and the you most you can watch it from the GoPro angle. Yeah, that's got to be one of the most exciting. Definitely uh, the one I'd m- most want to try. But I would also feel like I would break my knees in half. See, that's the thing. I feel like I would I would break something, but I, I wouldn't like I wouldn't want to try luge or skeleton because I think I would die. Whereas I would just hurt myself with the ski jump. Well, that is the top ten sports according to Adam in the Winter Olympics. Still think hockey should be number one. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017-1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson with Adam Dravetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Joined now by former member of the LJ World, former friend of the show. I guess you're always a friend of the show. Shane Jackson of WinBet. Shane, how's everything going? I wasn't doing great because I thought we weren't friends anymore, but uh, good to know that we are still friends. Yeah, you left us. I was offended. Uh, no, but all honestly, all honestly, Shane doing great work over uh, at WinBet, so we figured we'd have him on. Derek, can I say something real quick? Yeah, go for it. I was a producer on Shane's show in college, and that is where the the that is where the um 
segment around the world with Adam was born. Look at that. It was the show that Shane hosted. And Shane, you're now contributing then to RCST because we, we run around the world with Adam on Wednesdays. Yeah, well, what Adam didn't tell you was I was really bad at that. And so that's the reason why I got into print journalism. <laughs> You're not giving yourself enough credit. Um, so, yeah, the, the Super Bowl is obviously a very big uh, sports vetting event. Um, I don't know if it's the number one in the country or the world, but I, I'd imagine it's, it's got to be at least near the top if it's not. Um, so let's start with the game itself. We'll get into some more like prop bets and, and category-ridden things. Uh, but the game itself... I guess I've seen different lines at different places between three and a half, four and a half in favor of the Rams. Is there one side that you think might be the better play with the spread? Yeah, so we have it Rams minus four. It uh, looks like kind of like 63% of the money is on Rams minus four. Um, and I think our best case scenario is Rams actually win, but the it is by less than four points is, is kind of win bet's best case scenario. As far as where I see it, though, Full disclosure, I've been fading Cincinnati all playoffs, and I've been wrong every single game. Uh, I had the Raiders plus six and a half in, in the wild card round. Thought that was the best bet I've mm. made all postseason uh, because it closes at five and a half, and I ended up being on the wrong side. But still thought, you know, the Raiders had their chance there. Uh, and then I was, yeah, below two and a half with the Titans, and then Brian Tannehill throws a pick and sets up that field goal. Uh, then I obviously was on the Chiefs right before kickoff. Uh, and felt kind of strong about that, especially by halftime. So I have been fading Cincinnati all postseason, and I've been wrong every single game. But, of course, I think uh, the Rams are the right side. Uh, I think they are the better team. And if I had to think of a, a likely outcome for this game, it's, it's that the Rams kind of pull away and control this uh, from start to finish. Um, but I've been wrong this entire postseason, so I guess the, the, the advice here is to fade me and take Cincinnati. Well, I mean, I, I know if you finally would have picked the Bengals, the Rams would have 100% won because that's typically how it works. Mm. Once you get so mad at a team and you, you finally are like, okay, I, I give up, you're, you're good. And that's when they actually start to suck. Um, but uh, the over-under is 48.5. Is there one mm. side that you would lean on on that, or, or is that something you're avoiding? Uh, no, I mean, I think I think there's a very strong case uh, for the under uh, generally speaking, that, that seems to be the play in the Super Bowl. The one concern I have that with that total is that we haven't really seen, you know, Cincinnati's big ceiling game from this offense in the postseason. Uh, you know, we saw, obviously, them put together something in the second half, but, you know, some of that was, you know, because the Chiefs gave them good field position, right, or the defense kind of flipped the script there in the second half. We haven't seen, hey, Joe Burrow and these receivers – go completely berserk and kind of win the game for them. And so that's my one concern about betting the under. I think that's the right side in this game. I think the Rams, you know, is the right side in the spread, but I'm probably betting neither because I don't have strong enough conviction either way. And honestly, the Super Bowl is there's so many different markets that I'm just going to have fun with the props uh, and probably lose a lot of the money that I thought I won <laughs> over the course of the football season. Okay, let's get into some of those props then. We're talking with Shane Jackson of WinBet here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I want to sort these into different categories just to make things a little easier in, in kind of going through all these. Um, the first category that I have listed out is like yardage-related props. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, over, under, like whatever, 60, whatever rushing yards for Cam Akers, things like that. Are there any in, in the yardage categories that interest you one way or another? Yeah, so in general, I think uh, the the good advice here in yardage is if you're going to bet the over, you want to bet as early as possible. 
and if you want to bet the under, wait as long as possible. Um, and so right now, why the is one that? I have circled it. Uh, because, I mean, people generally, if you, you know, you think about the way public backs, they want to root for yardage or points or all that stuff. So they, they generally are rooting for the, the, the best case scenario right away. And I think you see early action on that. Whereas once the market kind of adjusts, then I would go with under. And then, and so that's because of that, I'm actually kind of circled in on the Cam Akers under 62 and a half rushing yards. I haven't bet it yet, but this is the one I am kind of zoned in on. It's because I think there's, Kind of a lot of love for Cam Akers in the over. I've seen a lot of smart people, you know, suggest that as their prop, top yardage prop. Uh, and so I think you've seen that go up, you know, five, six, seven yards already from its opening price. Um, and right now I would take the under 62 and a half, but if you can get, if you can eventually get a better number when it gets closer to kickoff, uh, I would do that as well. I, you know, I understand there's an argument that he went up against better defenses earlier on in the playoffs, but you know, he's been inefficient so far in the postseason. He's only, you know, hit, he's 55 yards is the most he's hit in a single game. Uh, and in general, I, I get the, the love for Cam Akers, what he's done, and he's come back. I mean, that, that's impressive. But right now, I'm not sure I want to back him and maybe the Rams rushing. The one, I guess, concern about it is that I do believe the Rams uh, win this game, so maybe they'll lean on him late. That's why I'm not really jumping on the rushing attempts, um, per se, but I think the under and the rushing yardage uh, you know, has my attention. Okay, the next category I have is, I guess it's kind of a subsect of that, honestly, but, um, you know, pass attempts or receptions or amount of runs, is there anything there that sticks out? Uh, well, in terms of attempts, uh, it's neither of the ones you mentioned. I actually really love uh, Joe Burrow over two and a half rushing attempts. Mm. Um, so he, he ran five times against the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. He ran five times in two of his last three games in the regular season. I'm assuming, you know, we've been talking for now two weeks because, you know, the, the bad thing about the Super Bowl is that you, you get two weeks of conversation. So everyone is talking about how the Rams are going to have this pressure on Joe Burrow and they're going to get to him. And I think you're going to see Joe Burrow take more on himself uh, and maybe, you know, break free and avoid pressure that way. Also, I mean, because I keep fading Joe Burrow and he keeps winning, assuming the Bengals win this game, I mean, the kneels come down, the kneel downs come into play at the end of the game. So uh, it is the concern about not doing yardage, right? So uh, famously, uh, a couple of years ago, the, the, the rushing yardage for Patrick Mahomes went under because of his kneel downs at the end of the game. So <laughs> staying away from the yardage is a play and instead going with the attempts. So I actually really like Joe Burrow over two and a half rushing attempts. It's, it's one of my favorite plays and I bet I've already played. Okay, I like that one. Okay, the next category I have is is touchdowns. Whether it's you know there's first touchdown score, there's just touchdown at any point, there's over under a certain amount of touchdowns. What do you like in the touchdown category? Uh, it actually kind of correlates uh, to a bet I suggested earlier, and it's Rams rushing touchdown being no in the game. So there's no rushing touchdown for the Rams in the game. It is priced at plus one fifty now. Uh, it was opened at like plus 160, and it's probably the same logic to the Cam Akers yardage bet, right? I, I just don't think maybe he's the healthiest version of, of himself. Uh, the Rams haven't scored a rushing touchdown this postseason, and their passing touchdown rate, uh, you know, in terms of top touchdowns, you know, 79.7% of those touchdowns are passing touchdowns. So I just think, in general, the Rams know that their more successful offense is through the air, uh, and, and I'm I'm willing to you know, avoid the potential, I guess, Matthew Stafford quarterback sneak uh, would come into play here, or maybe the Cooper Cup end around. 
Um, so it, it kind of correlates to earlier. So if Cam Akers ends up having a big day, I will probably lose a decent amount of money. But uh, I think, especially with plus money, I think this is a good bet. If you had to take somebody for first touchdown scorer, um, mm-hmm. would you just roll the dice with you know, somebody who's a favorite? Would you go with somebody more off the, the page a little bit? Yeah, so uh, I actually already wrote about this, but in general, my my strategy for first touchdown bets is not to take the favorite. Uh, I kind of treat it like a long shot golfer in a tournament. Like I'm, I know I'm going to lose this money, but <laughs> if I win, I'd rather get the big payout. Um, and so I recommended when it when the price is open to take Joe Burrow. At the time, he was forty to one. It was kind of the logic I had earlier. And I to think, clarify, that means know, it has to be a Burrow rushing touchdown, right? Yeah. Yeah, Burrow rushing touchdown, uh, and it opened forty to one. It's actually thirty to one now at WinBet. Um, but basically, it's the same logic, right? The Rams are pressuring him; he's in the red zone. You can see a scenario where he he avoids a sack and runs it in, or QB sneak instead of turning around and giving it to Joe Mixon. He just sneaks it in. I, in general, I think these are losing touchdowns, or losing bets, but they're kind of fun. So I think that is a fun way of doing it. I, there's also an argument for someone like Van Jefferson. He's he's fifteen to one, or or you know one of these ancillary weapons for the Rams that are not Cooper Cup because Cooper Kip, Cup at plus four fifty uh, does not seem like a a smart bet to me, um, and, and I would not put my money on that. Yeah, Adam just pointed out to me uh, could be like a Philly special too. You know, get him a receiving yeah. touchdown in there. Okay, uh, what about an in-game prop such as like you know. I don't know. There's all sorts of things. Highest scoring quarter, what team scores first, or who scores the longest touchdown. Anything in that regard um, as far as in-game happenings for the teams? Yeah, I think there's a a couple kicker ones that I'm interested by. Uh, The first one is, again, fading the market. Uh, It's the opening kickoff to be a touchback. It's now down to minus 110, which they're essentially implying that's a 50-50 shot. which both these kicker kickers rank in the top half of the league in touchback percentage. Evan McPherson, who would have, you know, obviously a 50% chance of kicking that, is in the top five in that area of the game. Uh, and I think the logic is what I've seen Adam Chernoff from covers on Twitter mentioned this. Basically, it's the ball is being used for the Hall of Fame, right? And so that's the logic is that uh, it's a bigger ball and 18 of the past 20 Super Bowls that the opening kickoff has been returned. Um, but I, because the market is all in on that, I'm choosing to fade it because now you're down to a 50-50 shot when I don't really think there's a 50% chance. Uh, it's probably more than the 70% chance, but it's a touchback. So I will take those odds. Uh, and the other kicker one I actually liked is the over three and a half total field goals, uh, for a win bet that's plus 135. Um, I think you can kind of make the argument, uh, make sense to you. Uh, you have conservative coaches. Uh, who might be more wanting to elect field goals in the red zone. Also, you have Evan McPherson, who has you know four field goals in three straight games. So him alone would get you to this total. Um, but you know, Mac A, obviously, if he is not as injured as he was two weeks ago, he comes into play in the situation. Uh, and so I, I kind of like both kicker-related props uh, for this week. Okay, now on to the non-football-related props, um, whether it's, you know, amount of, like, Budweiser commercials or the color of the Gatorade board on the winning coach or the national anthem like um, what props there kind of stick out to you in that category you know this is a good question uh, this will probably be the last thing I do any amount of research honestly I probably won't do research for it <laughs> I will just blindly bet things I mean how can you do research on the Gatorade yeah. you know 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, but so I actually haven't done any bets on this, and uh, it, it would be disingenuous to suggest one. Um, but I'm sure I will play, you know, the Gatorade color or the national anthem or even, you know, the coin toss for, I think, the last 10 years. I've just, you know, made a bet with a buddy on the coin toss. Yeah, so I am sure I will do something related to that. Uh, I have done heads for 10 years mm, in a row now. Tails never fails. Tails. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why I lose the bet all the time. Um, but no, yeah. He, he demands tails every year, and so I just take heads, and, and I know I'm going to win enough money throughout the Super Bowl that I don't care if I lose that bet. So, um, but I would recommend, obviously, if you're going to bet that, just bet with a, a friend and not pay the, you know, the big uh, at the sports book because that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it's a 50-50 bet. Okay, um, mm-hmm. the big one is the Super Bowl MVP award. Now, you mentioned you don't have the Rams scoring a rushing touchdown, yet you have the Rams winning. Does that mean you're leaning mm-hmm. Matthew Stafford? Yeah, I actually, so I think this is probably the most boring market, but I, I enjoy it the most. Uh, so essentially how I graded it out is I think Matthew Stafford probably is in the, what, 70% chance of winning MVP if the Rams win, uh, whereas Joe Burrow has like an 80% chance of winning if the Bengals win. It's how I would unofficially guess that, right? And so I think there's already advantage in the Rams side. And there's advantage because the Rams are likely to win, in my opinion. So that means, I think, if you're going to bet on someone else, uh, someone fun, maybe a defensive player or a receiver, I think you do it on the Rams side. Uh, when the lines opened up, I recommended Von Miller uh, over at the playbook for win bet. At the time, he was 50 to one. He's down to 40 to one. You know, obviously, he was the last non-quarterback to win, and now he's got a matchup against Prince, the right tackle for the Bengals. So you can make an argument that he has one of the better matchups on paper. Uh, similar arguments apply, though, to Leonard Floyd on the other side. Um, and uh, he could just as likely get a couple sacks, and you could see a low-scoring game leading to maybe a defensive player in that situation. Uh, right now, actually, Aaron Donald is our leading MVP bet. I think he's gotten 25% of the money and 23% of the tickets at 16-1. to 1. Uh, I, I guess I can see that uh, from a narrative standpoint, but I wouldn't go that high for a player that's probably not going to win it. 50-1 uh, to 1 is about the longest odds I would go. So I, I like Von Miller or Leonard Floyd. You could talk me into Jalen Ramsey as well. I will probably not be betting a quarterback just because I guess I hate winning bets because uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, it, it just to me, I'd rather take a long shot and just have fun with it and kind of win these straight bets uh, throughout the game. Okay. I have uh, two more questions about this Super Bowl MVP. So one, is there any value into taking, like you said, with all the field goals that could come with Evan McPherson as clutch as he has been, <laughs> is there any value into taking one of the kickers, maybe Evan McPherson at a hundred to one? I mean, if he goes yeah, like five so, of five on field goals, I don't know. Uh, well, I, I would say no, but okay. uh, I guess you could paint the picture, right? That he hits, you know, five field goals and the walk-off field goal. And then that's the way he wins this game. But no, I think, I mean, if you look at, if you think, if Cincinnati's going to win this game, it feels almost a guarantee that Joe Burrow's going to get it. Like he hasn't even been amazing in the postseason, and this entire narrative has been about how great Joe Burrow is, right? Uh, like the defense won them the AFC Championship game, and this still narrative was around Joe Burrow. So I think, especially when you're talking about legacy and young quarterbacks, like Joe Burrow is almost a lock if Cincinnati wins uh, to win MVP. Whereas Matthew Stafford. You know, I don't know if legacy or narrative come as much in, to play with him. And, and honestly, this is his, you know, achievement. This is like, hey, congrats on the Super Bowl. He's still probably going to win it if the Rams win, but I think there's a better chance that they're, they're likely to give it to someone else if it's a low scoring and he, he's uninspiring. But in general, if he has an average statistical game, he's probably winning this. 
So if you do think that the Bengals are going to win the Super Bowl, like you said, Joe Burrow mm-hmm. might have an 80% chance of winning the Super Bowl MVP. Are you, if, if you're if you're betting on the Bengals to win, uh, knowing their money line's going around 150 or something like that, and Joe Burrow for Super Bowl MVP is, is more over plus 200, aren't you just better off if you believe the Bengals are going to win betting on the Joe Burrow MVP line? Uh, you absolutely are. See, there you go, Derek. Boom. I'm <laughs> you, smart. You, you figured it out. You, you framed the <laughs> argument better than I did. Yes, he is. Uh, I, w- I would do that. If you think Cincinnati is going to win, I would absolutely place a bet on Joe Burrow to win the MVP. I just, it's hard to picture a scenario where he doesn't win it. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, someone else could have an amazing game, but I, I, I assume Joe Burrow feels as safe as it can be. You know, that's the hard part about all this, right? Like, you would go into every Super Bowl because Tom Brady's played in a million of them. You're like, yeah, well, he's going to win. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but the rest of it is fun. But, yeah, if you think Cincinnati's going to win, I, I would place a bet on Joe Burrow. All right, here's Shane Jackson of WinBet. Check out all his work. It's awesome, and it's really helpful, and, and hopefully one day it's very helpful locally in terms of Kansas legalizing sports <laughs> betting. Uh, Shane, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. All right, Shane, one last thing. Should they go back to painting the team's helmets on the 30-yard line at the on the Super Bowl field? Hmm. I did not know that they stopped doing that. Is that oh, yeah, thing? they haven't done it for years and years and years, but they used to every Super Bowl, and it was great. <laughs> uh, yeah, then if only for you to feel better about it, I, I think they should do that. <laughs> that's, what I, that's how I would do it. <laughs> All right, here's Shane Jackson. Win bet. Shane, thank you so much, as always, man. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's Shane Jackson with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening in on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. Two hours down, one to go. More KU basketball talk, Big 12 awards on the other side. Five o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Adam Dravetta, I am Derek Johnson. You know, it's funny because a lot of years where KU has these really good teams. It's like, okay, well, I think these two or three players should have a chance at being all Big 12 first team. And maybe some people still think that. But it feels like to me as I'm looking at this, and we'll go through this here in a second, Ochag Baji obviously would be a lock right now to be a all Big 12 first team performer. Yep. I'm not sure KU has a, I don't know, I guess Christian Brown is a candidate. But you know what's funny? There is a case to be made based on the voter and how you vote in the process, David McCormick is KU's second most likely first-team All-Big 12 performer. Well, he has. Look, there is no argument that he has raised his level of play during conference play versus what it was in the Mm non-con. Having said that, it it was not nearly raised to the level he did it last year between non-con and conference play because he was... um, arguably one of the two or three. I mean, he was great. Um, yeah, I mean, in just Big 12 play, he was the best center. Um, they gave it to Derek Culver, and, and Dave was second team because they, they viewed the overall body of work, which Culver mm-hmm. was better. Which is fair. Um, but in this year, there's no no argument that he he's improved himself. once. Big, now, it took a little more games into Big 12 play. It didn't start right at the drop of a hat. Um but I, although he was that Oklahoma State game in Stillwater, he was pretty good. It's just funny because if we were saying who is the best player in KU, it's Aochi. If you were to say who's the second and third best player on KU, Christian I think Brown. you'd probably say Christian Brown and Jalen Wilson. Yeah. The way Jalen's playing. And, and Dave might be the fourth or fifth on that list. And 
he might have the best candidacy. So we'll get into this because you might be screaming at your radio saying, no, Christian's better. That's not what I mean. I think Christian Brown's a better player. To, but the, and the other thing, the way the Big 12 does it, they go by positions. You don't, they don't have just to, say, Oh, they don't do they don't do positions. It's everybody it's has just their top own voting five? process, right? It. Oh, I thought has some some places have rules like you have to have one center. Well, like some conferences actually have to have like some they have that rule. I, I know, but if the Big Twelve just sure. says pick your top five players, yeah, I I don't know if it's top five players, but I don't think it's necessarily a designation as you have to have a point guard, shooting guards. So I think it's just like. It's either there is no designation or it's like you just have to have like a forward, mm. you know, and so it, that kind of changes around what we're talking about here. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll go through this and, and get to where I'm at. Ochai would be a lock for first team. Yes. I think Christian does have a shot at first team, but his Big 12 numbers being down, I think, would keep him off of it right now. Not in his scoring... If he was more efficient, even if his scoring numbers went down, but his actual shooting was more efficient, you'd have a better argument. But not only is his scoring down, his his, his efficiency numbers are down too. And then Jalen Wilson's kind of the opposite of Christian. He had the tough non-con. Christian had the amazing non-con. Christian's numbers have gone down. Jalen's numbers are, are soaring. Um, but as of right now, I'm guessing both guys would be either second or third team or maybe Jalen might not get on the list because of the overall body of work. But if you're just basing it on Big 12 play, he should be on the second or third team. Um, I got to think he lands at least honorable mention. Yeah, probably. So as you look at the first team, like I said, Ochai Locke, Iowa State has a legit first team contender with Isaiah Brockington. Um, he's averaging 16.5 points, 8 rebounds, 2 assists over steal per game. He's shooting 46%. Now, I wouldn't call him a lock because he's on the last place team in the conference. And they have and been matters. dropping like a lead balloon. They have been, like, like they truly have been bad in, in conference play. Yeah. Like, and look, well, they've been contending. I mean, early on, you know, they it, it, it took a Dewan Harris um, layup and uh, missing a good shot at the other end for Iowa State to lose to KU and Lawrence. And so, but but ever it's really since then it's kind of gotten worse and worse. It has that might keep him off, but like they're also still an NCAA tournament team. Brackettville has him as like a nine seed right now. Now if they continue to lose, they're not going to end up an NCAA tournament team. Yeah, they they, they, they could be honestly they could be the difference between the Big Twelve getting seven or eight teams in. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I I think if you were like drafting players. He, to me, is one of the five best players in the Big 12. Big 12. He is so good. He does so many things for that team. Um, so he's a candidate. Taz Sherman, great numbers at West Virginia. 19 points per game. The team has been a lot better when he's been back in the lineup after he missed a couple games. I feel like Taz, the same way. He's not a lock, but he's definitely a candidate. Really good player, but also on a team that is, I think, 4-7 and seven in Big 12 play. Mm-hmm. Um, James Akinjo. He's been Baylor's best player, and Baylor is one of the top contenders in the league, possible one seed. His solid numbers, too. 13 points per game, five assists per game, two steals. He's been efficient. Again, not a lock, though, because those numbers aren't lock-worthy, but he's in the discussion. He also got shut down in Lawrence. I mean, shut down. Yes, and I think that definitely matters as a part of the lock conversation. You know, that's an example why he's not a lock. Like Yeah, like you need... Like Ochai's bad games, he still grabbed ten or eleven points, and, mm-hmm. you know, four, five, six rebounds. Akinjo was was yeah. 
bad. What did he, was he over? He went over eleven. Yeah, he was really game. bad in Lawrence, and that was their biggest game of the season. Um, okay, so uh, the thing with Baylor and, and Texas, and even Texas Tech, they're really good teams, but it's hard to find. Like whereas Iowa State, you can say, okay, they're bad, but they have this one guy. Mm-hmm. With West Virginia, they haven't been that good, but they have this one guy. With Texas, Baylor, and Texas Tech, they don't have guys who at least statistically jump off the page. Like James Akinjo is second on the team at 13 points per game. Their leader is at 13 points per game. Texas, their point leader is at like 12 points per game. Texas Tech, their point leader is at 13 points per game. So it's tough of how you value the stats versus the winning aspect of it. Um, Texas, if you're going to pick a candidate, like Marcus Carr just hasn't been efficient enough. Courtney Ramey doesn't have the the stats outside of the, the points and He's not averaging 15 a game. He's averaging around 10 points per game. The biggest feather in Ramey's cap so far has been guarding Ocho. Yeah, but he's averaging like and 10 points, that's two assists, yeah. three rebounds. You're not going to get that guy on a first team. Timmy Allen's probably the best candidate. He's averaging 12 points, six and a half rebounds per game. He played really well against Kansas, hit all those mid-range shots, including the what eventually was the game winner. Um, Bryce oh, yeah, Williams from the free throw line. of Texas Tech, he doesn't have insane numbers either. He's averaging 13 points per game, leading the team there. Four and a half rebounds per game. It's weird because he's a forward. It's not like he has gaudy rebound numbers. And it's not like he's averaging 15 points per game. Certainly when I watch Bryson Williams, though, I say this is one of the better players in the Big 12. He has been super efficient. His conference numbers are even better than his overall numbers. So, again, not a lock, but a candidate. Um, You could argue, you know, like Kevin McCuller from Texas Tech, the raw numbers are, are there. On a really winning team, 11 points, 5.5 rebounds, 3.5 assists, 1.5 steals, but he's shooting 37% from the field. So not a first-team candidate if you're shooting 37% from the field. Mike Miles from TCU, tough candidacy. This kind of chalks up in the same thing as Kevin McCuller. He's leading a TCU team who's 5-4 and four in Big 12 play, surprisingly, a team who's supposed to be an NCAA tournament team right now. I think they're around the 6 or 7 line. He's averaging 15.5 points. He's averaging over four assists. He's averaging about four rebounds per game, over a steal. All those raw numbers say this guy's a first-team lock, but he's shooting 37% from the field and 30% from three. So it's tough to make him a lock on the first team, too. Here's the really interesting team to me. Kansas State, because Kansas State is not one of the top half teams in the Big 12. They're probably one of the bottom three or four. one of the top seven teams. Yeah, exactly. They might be... I know Iowa State is the worst team in the Big 12 right now, but Kansas State would surprise you if they ended up as the lowest in the Big It wouldn't. No. And that's not a knock against Kansas State. It's it's a measure of how strong the Big 12 is, but it is a knock against the candidacy for trying to get guys on the award show. Yet they have two guys who are candidates for first team. Nigel Pack. has been outstanding. Yeah. I, I Honestly, like besides Ochai, like Ochai is a lock for sure. Nigel Pack might be the next Nigel, guy. Nigel Pack has been outstanding this year, and he has been and and honestly, last night was kind of a microcosm of Nigel Pack. Really, this whole season, but particularly since Big Twelve play began, he scored thirty one. <laughs> he outscored every other K State player combined. The rest of the team combined scored twenty nine, and that's kind of been the story. And if you're going to be on a team that finishes last or near last in the conference and you're going to be in conversation for Big 12 first team, you're going to have to do exactly what Nigel Pack's doing, and his numbers are gaudy. He's, like, really good. He's averaging 18 a game, efficiency, 46% from the field, 43% from three. 
he to me feels like almost a first team lock. And he's then, one of those things where you like everything about him as an individual. Like, I don't know how you can make the argument to keep him off. He might end up being like the Big 12 preseason player of the year next year. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, if Christian Brown comes back, it might be Christian. He's but, been outstanding. Um, and then here's the other guy that wears pack. I feel like he is closer to being a lock. Mark Smith, I think, is more of a candidate. I don't know if I'd put him on there. But he's averaging 12 points and eight and a half rebounds per game. Like, those are numbers that can get you at least in the discussion. Um, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, I don't think have any real first-team candidates unless you get into the conversation that we're going to get into with David McCormick here in a minute, which Tanner Groves would then be a candidate, averaging about 12 and six and a half. Uh, so now, circling back, because that goes through, I think, all the Big 12 teams. Christian Brown, raw numbers overall on the season are better than a lot of those players we said. Yeah. Right, like I said, Timmy Allen, twelve and six and a half. Christian Brown has better raw numbers, and he's on the first place team in the Big Twelve. But you know, the Big Twelve numbers are down, and sometimes you also have voters who want to get representation from other teams. But at the very least, Christian Brown is a candidate for the first team, right? But this is super interesting because if you just pick back to the conversation we were having about how the teams are organized. If you just pick the five best players, you could argue you would go with five guards. I mean, you could argue yeah. Ochag Baji, Isaiah Brockington, James Akinjo, Taz Sherman, Nigel Pack. Yeah. Those are five guards, right? But I don't think, even if that's not a requirement, I don't It's think, hard to imagine enough voters doing that. Exactly. Exactly. I think the people, they might not go the traditional lineup. Like, some people do, I think, vote that way, where they go, I want a traditional point guard, I want a traditional center, yeah. I, and then the middle guys are are kind of interchangeable. But I think other people will just vote and say, you know, I'm fine if it's not an official lineup, but I do want to at least get, like, a forward or two on the lineup. I do want a lead point guard, and then I do want, like, two two other guards. And if that's the case, I think what ends up happening is you take off like I said, I, I think Ochai and Nigel Pack, you feel good about them on there, but I think one of either Brockington or Sherman, I'd probably lead Sherman, would get plucked off the list for like Bryson Williams, who's been fantastic for Texas Tech, one of the best teams at the conference. He's really, really good. It's also, I mean, vote a lot of voters care about where you finish in the conference. Not to the point that if like if one player's been really good and they're third they're not going to give it to the guy that's on the first place team if the guy on the third place team is clearly better. But if the difference is being like second or mm -hmm. third place versus dead last, or I mean, Sherman wouldn't be dead last. He'd be he no, but like but he, you know, he, he would be lower. If you see West Virginia six. finishes eight and ten in Big Twelve play, yeah. and they're they're in six, like you said, and you have Bryson Williams who maybe doesn't have the points, but he was more impactful on a better team who finished. Uh, you know, finished in the top 15 in the AP poll, like you're going to probably go Bryson Williams. And I think you can make the same argument for a guy like Timmy Allen if you wanted to go with him over maybe an Isaiah Brockington that, yeah, the stats aren't there, but it's because the team's deeper and he, he couldn't take as many shots. So I think those guys are there. Yeah, there, there's a chicken and egg element to it. Like, how good would Nigel Pack be? I think the thing about Nigel Pack is I think what you see from him is even if this was the K-State team from a couple years ago that had um, Barry Brown like and Dean Wade, Wade and, and like had other guys like that, and this is a K-State team that is looking at maybe trying to get you know a, a nine seed or an eight seed, um, I still think you are you are 
seeing a player who is very clearly one of the best players in the conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he needs his team. Like I, I don't. I think if you look at him, you're not seeing a guy going well. Yeah, but he's just taking up all the opportunities from a team that has none. Doesn't have anybody else. He's just really good. Here's where the kicker in the conversation comes in. For those voters that want a traditional center, this is where it ties back around to David McCormick. Now, Bryson Williams plays a lot of five for Texas Tech. But if you're thinking of traditional five men, Mm -hmm. Bryson Williams is basically a forward playing the five spot for Texas Tech. But if you're wanting a traditional center, and that's how somebody votes, David McCormick is a legitimate candidate for someone who decides to do that. I, I narrowed it down. There's basically four traditional centers who could make candidacy for being the top center in the Big 12. And you might look at David McCormick's numbers and say, he's averaging nine and a half points per game, seven rebounds, one block, 52%. That's fine, but how on earth would that be first-team all-conference yeah, numbers? Yeah, that's, that's where you, you're at a point where anybody who is so convinced that they need to have a center might actually, when they look down at the nitty-gritty and they look at that and they'll go, man, it feels mm-hmm. weird putting no actual true five down there, but if that's my best option, then I can't. Yeah, but if they if they are convinced they want to do that, Here's the other candidates there. Jonathan Chamwachachua, who's averaging 8.5 points, 7 rebounds, half a block. Better efficiency, 68%, but he's asked to do less on offense. He's just I'm pretty a, sure I saw Nathan Chin do a double Chamwachachua last night during his routine. All right. Uh, Trey Mitchell at Texas is averaging 9 points, 4 rebounds per game, less than a block per game, 48%. So Dave has comparable, if not better, numbers than both those guys. And then the other candidate, and this is where I think it gets interesting, Tanner Groves is averaging a little over 12.5 points per game, about 5.5 rebounds per game, but you know he's not a good defender, 55% from the field. If somebody wants a traditional center, it might come down to David McCormick versus Tanner Groves, and you could make the argument that David McCormick's just a better player. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's I agree, but I, I just... I, I can I can so picture though somebody just being so convinced I need a five guy I need a five guy I need a five guy okay yes fewer rebounds but points okay he's got he's at least in double figures in something mm-hmm. so they give it to Groves yeah if if Dave goes off the next couple of weeks then maybe he has a chance but I don't think I put a center on my ballot if I have a vote though. I agree unless you consider Bryson Williams since he does play some five for Tech the, my ballot right now. First team, I would go Akinjo, Pack, Brockington, Ochai, and Bryson Williams. And then second team, I'd probably have Taz Sherman, Christian Brown, Mark Smith, Timmy Allen, and Tanner Groves. Okay. So, I, I don't know. For whatever that's worth. And there's yeah. obviously... No, I mean, uh, that's... Yeah. There's about a so month So, you, would, you would slide Dave McCormick all the, way, all the way down to at least a third team? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I... Yeah, I'd probably I just, on a third I think team. Nine and eight, man. But even then, like, I would I would rather see Jalen Wilson on a third team. It's just, it's dependent how you vote. Yeah. Like, I would rather just leave off centers if there's not enough good ones. And then, like, for instance, last year in the Big Ten, when you had Luca Garza, Kofi Coburn, and, and all these centers, like, it, put two on, on one it, team, right? It's not like... It, it isn't like that the, the Big 12 has morphed into this thing where everybody's playing, like, Villanova. Right. And there's just not center minutes. Well, you're not... There, there are real true centers in this league. It's just... I mean, they're now, like you said, they're arguably four, if you want to make the argument, five. So it's not like there are a ton. It's not like there's one true five-man on every team. But there are true five-men to pick from mm-hmm. on the, in this league. 
but none of them have been that good. Yeah, that's my issue. You're not building a team that's going to actually go compete with the other conferences. If you're doing that, then yeah, we are going to get into a discussion about you know what I want the team to look like and who fits with who and and how I want to stretch for whatever it is. But we're not. You're just you know it's an award thing, and I think it should. Uh, not necessarily like I wouldn't want to put all five point guards. I think there's a balancing act between the two of them, between, you know, picking the five very best players and picking the five best players that fit into a position. So I want it to resemble at least somewhat like a of real a team, basketball team. But I don't need a true center if there's not one. But a, it, I'm sorry, I'm having a brain lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Texas Tech kid. Uh, yeah, Bryson Williams. Yeah, you could picture a real life basketball yes. team with Bryson Williams at the five. Mm-hmm. Like that, you can picture that. But that that is least, not equivalent to a five guard lineup. That does make David McCormick a candidate, which is crazy. After it doesn't really seem like he's had the season to think you to make you think that that would be the case. All right, with Adam Dravet, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.